Hello, I'm your host Jim McLean. Welcome back to More Than Pixels on a Screen, a podcast brought to you by the Banderflix Movie Review website. On this episode, we're going to be looking back at Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The film was released back in 1991, directed by Kevin Reynolds. It stars Kevin Costner, Alan Rickman, Morgan Freeman, Christian Slater. It's a pretty impressive ensemble cast, I've got to say, for this film. And yes, there is that Brian Adams song. I'm a huge fan of the film. It was a massive box office success when it was released grossed nearly 400 million and uh, it was an absolute pleasure for me to be joined on this recording by the film's writers and producers Penn Dansham and John Watson we spoke via zoom just before Christmas I'll apologize in advance I think I was just getting over the cold I had a bit of a sexy kind of cold voice going on and I don't think it distracts too much from the recording. I've got to say the two gentlemen were very gracious with their time. We chatted for nearly an hour. But before you hear that interview, let's play a clip of the film. You wish to end this? Yeah. You wish to go home? Yeah. Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves and face that the price for it may be dear. I for one would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than ten hired soldiers. The Crusades taught me that. So that's a clip of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the film's writers and producers, Penn Damsom and John Watson. So hello to you both. This is an absolute pleasure for me because I'm a massive fan of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think I was nine when this came out. And uh, I don't know, I know we'll maybe touch on this, but I don't know whether I should have seen it in the cinema or not. Because I remember at the time, I think it was a PG when it was released and I went to see it in the cinema and it might have been the first time I seen an F-bomb or heard an F-bomb in the cinema. I came to this from the Disney Robin Hood. So this was something completely different. So I'm going to come to you first, Pen. You know, where did the the idea for this? Because I think I read some of this started out life as a as a it was a ninety two ninety one two page outline that you had for doing right. something slightly different with the Robin Hood story. And where where did that come? What was the kind of catalyst for the the acorn of an idea? I should say for well, that. Well, John and I had gone to Hollywood and learned a bit about uh, the system, and. Um, we, we realized that there were films that we wanted to make and we had doctored a few films for people like Stallone. And we were seeing a lot of movies that were where people killed each other in large quantities, so Stallone and Schwarzenegger. But human beings weren't really uh, valued. They were more like bowling pins. And we've both, both been making films who were optimistic and, um, and heartfelt. And I had the original idea, which was one line, which was Robin Hood a la Raiders. But I also looked at it that I wanted to make a film that valued life. I called the the negative films takers of life and the positive ones were about makers of life. So I came up with this very simple idea, which was what if you took a really rich, spoiled Robin Hood and turned him into a man that was willing to die for the future of his children, his, his peasants' children. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was encouraged to start writing that after I pitched it at three different studios and none of them thought that there was any future in it. They said, um, no one wants to see guys with swords. They just don't want to see uh, actors with guns. And despite that, 
started writing it. And as, as I was writing it, John was reading my pages every day and encouraging me to keep taking the, the, the risk of it because it, it seemed a bit pyrrhic. It was just a passion project um, because we'd already been turned down for pitching it. Um, and then when I finished the pages with John's overview, he also then started going in through my pages and working his own magic into the characters and into the dialogues. And so we, we sort of overlapped each other, making the, uh, the screenplay. And at the end of it, um, we heard that now Fox was going to make a Robin Hood. And uh, we thought, oh, shit, we've written the script and we're not getting <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, but luckily, um, we put it out to the community and there was a bidding war. Uh, which we, John and I both participated in trying to figure out how we could uh, stay in control of our movie. Could I ask you, and just to bring yourself in, John, as well, into this into, into the chat, um, you're, John, you're, you're writing partners. So what's that process like? Before we kind of get into specifically, I suppose, Robin Hood and talking about the screenplay for that, what is that relationship like with yourself and and Penn. Well, I would say, by the way, we both grew up in England, so uh, Robin Hood was kind of in our DNA. Mm -hmm. kind of both grew up playing swords and arrows in the forest. So, uh, so the, I don't think any two writing partners are exactly the same, and I don't think we ever wrote anything in the same way that we did Robin Hood. Um, Robin, Penn wrote probably the longest ever outline for a movie, and <laughs> it was not traditional outline he filled in dialogue where he thought of it he had you know a lot of character evolution uh beyond what is normal in an outline and then um i had a, an intensive few weeks where i just went through his outline and started f turning it more into screenplay form mm -hmm. um, and we didn't actually work together that much on it i mean it was started with pen's inspiration and i took over and then when i was finished with my screenplay we had a very brief interchange to kind of fix it, to get it to where we wanted. We were so much in sync in that process. And the first few people we tested it on jumped on it and encouraged it. And it was we were coming out of a writer's strike in Hollywood. So there was a hunger for movies at the time. And our agent felt very strongly that we had a real chance to, to sell it, um, in spite of the fact that we'd been rejected during the script-making process. Normally, you know, you asked about the writing process. Normally, we would sit in the room and hammer things out together and put ideas on the wall and organize it, organize it scene by scene. This was different. Could I ask why? How, how you felt that? I know you've touched on that a little bit, but how you, how you felt that that was different compared to what you'd done previously? Well, it, it was just the way it evolved. I and mean, I just think it came into Penn's head in a, in a very you know, clear form and um, my you know, sitting with him and you know, second guessing him or debating it was not going to help the process I, you know let yeah let him let him go with it let him run with it and he had you know well Penn can speak better than that but I think that you know you just you just hit you hit a flow right yeah yeah you know there are things like there are things Jim I call life scripts which is where something you're you're, you're impassioned about it sometimes you don't even know what will come out of it, except you have a certainty that if you go forward, things will create. And there were two issues that were really important to me. One was 
um, having had the privilege of having had a child with my my wife, I looked at children as uh, something incredibly important and special. And in this particular case, I wanted to write about um, a, a, I ended up writing about a cesarean operation, which is how my son was born and putting it into the movie um, because I, I wanted to write a humanistic film. And the, also the second idea, John and I were very influenced by, by a movie called Why Man Creates, which was a short film that won an Oscar by Saul Bass. And, and there was one little thing in it, which is where um, he's the, he's, he creates this pyramid animation of humanity. And in the 1100s, he had this thing that the, uh, the, the Arabs invented, invented the zero. And then someone says, what's that? And someone else says, nothing, nothing. But that always stayed with me. And I always thought, what if you took a sophisticated, eloquent Arab and put him right with all these ragged ass Englishmen and you end up um, and and the there was Arab uh, doctors at the court of the, the German uh, king at that time. And the, the Arabs had astronomy. And so why not give them a telescope? And they had the Silk Road. So why not give them gunpowder and, you know, open it up a little bit. But also the philosophy of two people who are absolutely enemies was yeah. was very key to me because having raised a kid i'm looking at how much love and effort it takes to raise a kid and the frustration of seeing people killing each other for philosophy i wanted to write a story where the philosophy actually never interfered with two people learning from each other's strengths yeah because because one thing i did want to ask you you both was that the character that morgan freeman plays within the film was that always there from the, from the outset or early on in the project or was that a case of Morgan Freeman is available and we now could have get this actor in because you kind of think of star power and getting projects made um, but you're saying that was there early on? That, that was very much the, the original philosophy of the movie was to put an Arab in Robin Hood but John I think should speak to how we cast Morgan um, I think he was more involved in that aspect Well yeah I think it was a you know, we had pitched the idea you know I made it sound like Penn just sat down and started writing the outline we had been pitching it around the studios and being busy being rejected so we you know that was an early idea as part of our pitch was the idea of putting a, a black muslim character into the story and starting the movie in the crusades part of the legend of Robin Hood included that that Robin of Luxley had gone to the crusades so we kind of thought that was a good kickoff point he comes home to discover that his home had been destroyed um no, the casting of Morgan was um, after the movie had been picked up by Morgan Creek and we were going into production. We uh, Morgan had been in a movie called Streetwise and uh, he was gaining some notoriety. And um, the um, what was the name of the movie where he played the chauffeur? Um, oh, Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. So the combination of the sort of gentility of driving with Daisy and the sort of badass element of streetwise <laughs> made him seem like an immensely appealing character, and and he was bowled over by it. You know, he just he just said he was so knocked out that anybody had thought of putting a black character into Robin Hood, and he it was uh, turned out to be a pretty easy sale. Yeah, and you know, I I will come to the casting, but I re I've rewatched the film because we we did it a couple of weeks ago actually on the TV show. Uh, we did it on our TV show. We talked about it because I say I, I grew up with this film, and uh, you look at the cast, and I you know I come back to this. I mean, the cast this is just an impressive ensemble. You know, of of just actors that were either kind of just you knew at the time or actors that were very much on on the way up as well. 
I, I want to come back to something you've both said, and I know in my typical rambly way, we will, I keep saying this, we will get to talk about the film. But what did you both learn from that rejection process? That you that you, you said that you pitched the film, but it was rejected, but you kind of persevered with it. What what I suppose there's two elements to my question. What kept you with that drive to persevere? And what did you take from that rejection process that you've carried with you in your career to date? Ever wondered what it takes to make it in the movie business? Peel back the curtain with 4-6 Success Filmmaking. 4-6 Success Filmmaking is where filmmakers share their stories and the secrets. It's beyond competitive out there. There have been movies that it's taken me 10 years to get made. Don't wait to create. Like, you've got to just keep making stuff. Tune in to 4-6 Success Filmmaking for your dose of cinematic realness, direct from the voices that have lived it. Well, I think the thing that I've learned, and, I, and both John and I have taught at various times, and John teaches right now at USC, is that um, passion is a driving force. And I, I really wanted to create this project and um, because there were messages in it that I felt that I wanted to bring to the community. And so um, one overcomes rejections if you're so passionate that you try and figure out, okay, they said no. What do I have to do so they'll say yes? And I call that sometimes building a bridge backwards. Um, and I think, you know, part of writing is also voice and being, as John said, he freed me to write from my voice. So it was to take the uh, the rules of what you're supposed to write out and then see what, and I, I say to people, write dangerously, which means write to the extremes of what you can create and see how that is, because that's going to have your own nature in it. It's going to have language in it that you wouldn't have normally written because they don't want that. Um, and so I, I, my, my first draft was very much that. And I, I had pitched it at Disney, Geffen, TriStar, and all of them had said, you know, no way. There's no market for historical movies. And, you know, so sitting down to write it, I had to be encouraged um, to take it on and the, the fuse was lit, was just saying, you know, if you start, we'll help you. And, and John, you know, was there to give me encouragement. And we've worked that way a few times. I did a film in uh, Southern Ireland called Mal Flanders with Robin Wright and Morgan Freeman. And um, John was my producer on that movie. And he said to me, you know, uh, how, what, what are you seeing? And I said, I'm seeing a very big movie. We've got a very small budget. And he said, just go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we get the movie on the screen. So sometimes having that passionate support as well as your own passion lets you take risks. And so writing that Robin Hood, which seemed to be a waste of time because it had already been told not to, that it wouldn't sell, um, it, it was because I needed to write it. And I had, I also had failed to write another script many years earlier because I'd heard that uh, Thunderheart was getting made and I had a script which had a, a Native American uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a detective from Chicago working together, both of whom needed to go through a kind of growth process. When I heard Thunderheart was getting made, I stopped writing it and Thunderheart didn't get made for four more years. And so I realized I killed uh, a, a, a creative baby 
And then uh, it took me years and years trying to get back to that place where I could actually create it. I did finally write that script and it's still something I'm trying to get made. Years later, the, the, the themes in it move me gigantically. I tingle when I work on that script, which is crazy, but I like that. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess you know. I know we, we will, as I keep saying, we have to talk. We want to talk about the film. But you, you've mentioned, I think it was yourself, Penn said at the time there was another film, a Robin Hood idea was in development by Fox. I think it was actually was there three in total, including your own at the time that were in a kind of pre-production stage or were in the process of kind of getting made. So how? I, from- I think well, John and I get John's memory sometimes is so much better than mine. But- <laughs> Uh, there was no Robin Hoods. I remember it vividly. <laughs> yeah, good man. Yeah, John. John. Go ahead. I think the, the value of rejection is that it forces you to analyze how serious you are about a project. And uh, I think you know Hollywood tends to make the same movie over and over again. And the idea of uh, doing something set in medieval times, you know, the reaction was uh, typically men in tights in the forest. You know, why don't you put it in the future? Put it, you know, make it sci-fi and we just the rejection forced us to analyze it and and we realized how committed we were to it um so while i was in the writing process my house was being remodeled and i moved in for a few nights into my agent's home and he came home one night and said so what are you writing and i said i'm writing robin hood and he went what why are you writing robin hood john mctiernan is going to make that movie at fox you know he's my client stop don't write it I can't stop writing, you know. I mean, Penn's got this whole outline. It's like, we're nearly there. It's going to be great. And to his credit, he completely supported the movie when we were finished and found himself in a bit of a conflict, I guess. But ours got made and John McTiernan's didn't. So there you go. Um, that that was that was the odd timing of it all. And the, the third project was we were actually scouting in um, the New Forest where we ended up shooting and uh another team another production was scouting at the same time <laughs> in the same forest and uh that was a movie that was made by tristar it ended up being on television mm. and that got made too can i ask you both you know you were talking about the project it was rejected then you started to see it kind of mothballing into becoming a reality how, how did you feel can you can you look back to that time kind of it's kind of think pre Brian Adams, etc. Of of when the film started to be and it became a reality. Like, were you always going to produce this? Was it going to be a case where you were going to write and produce, or is that the way you operate um, as as producers and 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 writers? Was that? Uh, it all happened very quickly when we finished the script. Our agent sent it out. He had to send it first to Paramount, where we had a first look deal, and they. Um, took it seriously and, and uh, had a lot of internal debate, but the, the time ran out. I think they had 24 hours or 48 hours to decide. And so we went out to the industry and it was, it was um, 19, it was Valentine's day, 1990, February the 14th. And it was being read all around town by various studios. And it was a crazy day. And we kept hearing word that, you know, the head of uh, Warner brothers liked it and he was on page 60 and he thought he was going to, going to say yes and then he changed his mind or you know it went round and round an insane day i remember i was out at dinner when the agent called and said no we actually have two offers and so Penn and i put our heads together and tried to figure out which of the two offers we were going to accept do you want to pick it up from there Penn? well yeah i mean the, the one of the things about this process is 
Um, I knew Steven Spielberg's development person. We'd met her working with another company. And so I slipped her the script. And then she phoned our agent and told him that Steven would be reading the script, which got him very excited, which motivated him to send it out to lots more places. So again, one one doesn't necessarily get to these goals without making an effort behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, We also heard that Warner Brothers was going to take it and offer us an enormous amount of money, but they were going to give it to Joel Silver and take us off the project. We heard that uh, 20th was trying to buy it from us, but they were going to kill it so they could make their own one. And there was one company called Morgan Creek who seemed to be interested in buying it for less than Warner's, but that they would allow us to come on board as producers. And John and I have produced movies together since we started making short films uh, in the 70s. And we'd been Oscar nominated for our short films. We had then become film doctors in Hollywood to Stallone and others. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to make our own movies and control them because we 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 were physical. We could shoot, we could edit. And a lot of the people in this business are like agents who'd be given a script and take it to a studio and call themselves a producer. We actually love film. We eat film. We we learned how to, you know, how how to bend film with our with our uh, emotions. And um John was the was won more awards than any other editor in Canada for, for, for his editing of our films. And so we we yearn to bring those skills to the making of our own movie, Robin Hood. So we elected to go with Morgan Creek. And when we said yes, we were still scared that they might be buying it and giving it to someone else. But John actually was very tactical. He moved into Morgan Creek's offices. So he was there every day and they let him in and started moving the the piece through all the systems inside theirs so that we could actually get a jump on the other Robin Hoods and and uh, motivate the people to to get the film made. John, just coming back to coming back to kind of put that idea of producing, you both seem that as as Penn's alluded to there that you're passionate about producing. Kind of how how do you find that production? How do you find that process of working as a producer on a project like this? I can't remember what I can't remember who it was. Uh, I remember maybe it was asked about being a producer and they kind of said, my job is to make sure that the the crew, the, the filmmakers have everything they have for the day to make sure they can make the best possible day to shoot on that day. Everything's there available to them. But how do you find the the role of a producer? I suppose if we move now from kind of the project, Robin Hood being in development to suddenly getting to go ahead to suddenly then you're you're making the film how do you find that process as a producer uh from day to day well the term producer covers a lot of different um methods uh some some producers you know never go on set some producers are very good at packaging and raising money and um uh, my passion is for actually being hands-on for actually making movie being there on set every day for being involved in every single decision of the process that comes from you know, what Ben was referring to, our background in Toronto, where there was just two of us making movies. So we had to do it all. We wrote them, we directed them, we produced them, we shot them, we edited them, we did the sound, we did it all. So we had this sort of whole rounded approach to movie producing. We didn't really distinguish it. We're filmmakers, right? We're multi-hyphenate filmmakers, and uh, we love doing it all. So. Um, as soon as Morgan Creek said they were interested, my intent was just to, to move in into their, I asked them to give me an office and I was 
all day, every day, just helping and pushing and pushing and pushing. Because there's a long step between you know, somebody buying the script and actually making it. You know, they they spent some money on optioning the material, but you know, this was going to be a big, expensive movie, and it required complete commitment. And um, they stuck with it. And uh, the process was uh, very early on after they bought it. We were told that. Um, Kevin Costner was interested in playing Robin Hood, but he had also told two other productions he was interested in playing Robin Hood. So he, we were told that he liked our script, but we didn't have a director on board. So um, we actually started the actively started the pre-production process without having a director on board. I went over to England a couple of times and started meeting with potential heads of departments, with cinematographers and designers and line producers and looking at locations and uh, going to studios and trying to figure out the logistics of it while we were still trying to figure out if if we had a director and if we were going to go ahead. And the clock was ticking because you know, Robin Hood requires you being in a forest and it requires leaves on the trees in the forest. And as the days started to go by, we were looking at, what are we going to do? We have to shoot Robin Hood in the wintertime and there's no leaves on the trees. And uh, so it was... It was a a very dramatic uh, battle, and we were, as we said earlier, racing against two other potential productions. So I don't know. It was all systems go. At what point then does does Kevin Reynolds come on? And I suppose, I mean, now enough time has passed. I mean, were there other filmmakers that you looked at potentially? And then what at the end was it that settled on on Kevin Reynolds? And I guess you might have already alluded to the answer when you said time was off the essence, John. Well, I don't, I, I don't know if I can re- recall all the filmmakers we went to. I, I know that Martin Campbell was one uh, who went on to, to great success with the uh, Bond movies and Zorro. Uh, he came in to meet, and I, we couldn't convince um, Morgan Creek that he was the right guy. Uh, Kevin Reynolds expressed interest very early on, and he'd worked on a movie called Fandango with Kevin Costner before, and we knew they were close. But he was on a movie at Universal that he thought was going to be a go movie. Um, but we kind of knew that if we could get Kevin Reynolds, we'd had a real good shot at getting, getting Kevin Costner. And there was one um, Friday afternoon where I was doing my my rounds and I called Reynolds and I said, hey, what's how are things looking? And he said, you know, my movie here, I don't think it's going to go. We run into a real problem. Um, you know, I'm all in if you want me. So I called uh, Morgan Creek and we arranged a meeting the next morning, which was a Saturday morning at the hotel where Jim Robinson stayed. And Kevin Reynolds and I went down there and uh, told them we were all on board and we were on a plane to England that same day. So, you know, when we had like three weeks at that point, I think it ended up being four or five weeks, but like three weeks before the start date that we were hoping to hit in order to get the weather right running at warp speed i guess in that sense uh, i'm surprised for me i've got so far we've been talking for about just under over 20 minutes alan rickman right and i know there's probably a question you guys from a writing point of view you're probably by now tired of answering but i, I have to ask that question anyway but just you've talked about kevin uh kevin reynolds and kevin costner coming on board alan rickman i mean i i remember the nine-year-old self that was the the performance the the boo and hiss 
Now, when I think of, of the late, great Alan Rickman, I, I do think of Hans Gruber. It's coming up to Christmas time. That Christmas tradition is not Christmas until Hans Gruber has fallen from Nakatoma Plaza. But also, around Christmas time, Robin Hood is always on the television. It's always a film I will sit down and watch. And as much as I, I love Kevin Costner and other bits and bobs in the film, practical, the practical, the soundtrack, I mean, there's so many things I know I'm not going to have time to talk to you about. The soundtrack for the film, I adore. But Alan Rickman, that performance, and I guess then we can segue into your memories then of, of when it became apparent he was changing dialogue, uh, adding in his own dialogue. From from writer's point of view, how how was that at the time? And then now, what, over 30 years on, how do you, how do you look at that? I know that's a load I've asked. That's what I usually do. I ask you about five questions in one. So whoever <laughs> wants to go first, far I'll away. Take, I'll take some of it and get some of it. <laughs> so the process was that um, we, we went to Alan pretty early on and uh, he turned us down. Alan was didn't want to get pigeonholed as a villain. Yeah. You know, that was not what he wanted to be. And so the worst thing you could say to Alan is, you're a wonderful villain. And he would, <laughs> you know, half an hour later, he'd stop berating you for that. <laughs> so he he's an actor, first and foremost. And um, anyway, so he turned us down and uh, we didn't actually get him on board until we were about a week and a half into filming. Uh, we started filming without our our Rickman, but he was our guy. You know, we knew he was our guy, and um, we we talked to various other people, but we kept on coming back to him, and we finally talked him into it. And part of the way we talked him into it was allow him some flexibility with the dialogue. He had tons of ideas, and he wanted to try some other things. So the basic rule that we put on him was: you can do anything you want as long as you also say the lines that are in the script. <laughs> Say the lines that are in the script, and if you want to improvise and add additional material, you can do that. And I don't know how Penn feels about it, but I mean, at the end of the day, like the proof is in in the success, right? I mean, obviously, people absolutely adored Rickman's performance and thought he was fantastic. For myself, I had some concerns. I had some rev- uh, reservations. You know, I didn't know how the audience would respond to it. It was very over-the-top, extreme, <laughs> not the dark vision that original Penn and I originally had. But, you know, I think we were smart enough to know that it uh, it was working for people, so we kind of embraced it. Yeah, I guess it's a sense of, of your writer's head, but also your producer's heads as well, kind of in that stage of looking at that when you see what you're getting. The job of a, of a producer is um, to get the best out of the actor. And uh, what you're looking for is to infuse the characters that you've written with as much life and fascination as you possibly can. Plus, um, we ended up um, taking the final edit of the movie. And so we did a lot of work with the improv lines that um, you know Alan had, had come up with and molded them so that they were the best flow mm. uh, based on our... Uh, also, we had audience responses from tests to see how how it, how much you could get into the Monty Pythonish kind of things and still keep a real life form going through the character so that he was still a, a fear and a, and a villain enough to uh, be a foil because you know if I say no one would remember David if Goliath was five foot six so you know you had to make sure that the sheriff of Nottingham was still evil while he was funny and the threat otherwise then the heroics would fail 
and Robin will be winning against nothing. So uh, we, we worked very, very hard to make sure those dynamics were successful. Plus we were doing rewrites, or I was doing rewrites for um, Kevin while we were working as well, because actors feel things, their nature has got strengths. And um, so Kevin and I would be working, looking at how to get the, the scenes so that he could feel himself in the way that he interpreted Robin Hood. And so that that's a normal part of any filmmaking. Um, you can't sit back as a writer and say, that's my sacred script, don't touch it. That would make no sense at all. Uh, you're not allowing that 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 magic that comes from, you know, the spirit of, of life breath, breath breathed into it by, you know, the actor. Um, again, I, I could, gentlemen, I could very easily talk to you a long time, but I'm sure that you have more you pressing can. things to do than speak to myself. But what are your... What are your, if we could generalize, I suppose, from what's your memories of that shoot? I mean, we've talked specifically about Rickman. We've talked about bringing the, the two Kevins on board. But you, you've talked about being hands-on producers. What's your memories of that shoot? And then you've kind of touched on one thing I did want to mention, the, the editing process, because I know that was kind of complicated. And I know there's been a few different variations. I think on the recent re-release, the DVD and Blu-ray, there's the kind of 12-minute extended version that adds in a few little bits that were cut from the final cut. But what's your memories of the actual shoot for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? If I ask you that question, what, what comes to mind instantly? Uh, it was a... It was absolutely exhausting. I mean, we we started out with a much shorter schedule than we ended up with, and partly to do with um, the w weather considerations, with um, a, a debates about screenplay because the director came on very late in the process, and Kevin Costner actually arrived after we finished shooting as well, coming off Dances with Wolves. So the script was constantly evolving. Um, we ended up shooting 100 days. We ended up shooting for six-day weeks for 100 days. At one point, we had as many as four units filming. Could I just all... ask, John, what had you planned? You said you should... What, did, what was your kind of... The, the, the dream? 60-something days we were originally planning to shoot it in. And uh, to, be, you know, to give credit to Morgan Creek, they completely supported it. They believed in it. They, they saw it emerging. They saw the dailies. They realized we were making something quite extraordinary. So they got completely behind it. And um, we, if you try to film in England in uh, November, December, January, outdoors in a forest, it, it is miserable. The very short days, the very cold, wet days, there's a dampness that sort of gets into your bones when you're filming there. Um, very little sleep. You asked what I remember. I, basically, I don't think I slept for about uh, nine months. And uh, post-production arguably was even harder, and Penn was equally involved in that. Um, we were scrambling to get the movie. What studios do is they set a release date, and then you have to try and get your movie ready for that. Mm -hmm. And um, we were scrambling to try to get the film edited after previewing it, um, and there were some debates about the edit, and uh, it got quite political at certain points. And... Um, I remember we were actually editing later reels in the movie while Penn was supervising the sound mix for the first few reels in the movie. We broke all the rules. The movie was not done the way it traditionally should be done. And I think it, you know, it may end up accounting for some of his success. It was just a movie that wanted to be. It is a movie that sort of evolved and happened on, on, the, on the flow, on the run. Yeah. 
pen your, yourself your memories of the the shoot and as john alluded to kind of the post-production well it it again as john says this this movie had a lot of people contributing it uh, and some of the things were uh, michael Kamen's score uh was just phenomenal i think the movie would be half what it is without that stirring vibrant um very very emotional score very much like the original robin hood with well the original it's not there's no original because you keep going backwards but um you know errol flynn's again um so uh and also we were seeing um costner was was uh becoming more and more successful because of dances with wolves which again it, it was called kevin's gate when he was working on it. people were yeah. making fun of him because they were sure he was going to lose his shirt and and you know the movie became the best picture and so um you know the, these imprecise imprecise sort of guesstimates of what what the world would be how it would receive something um you know we we went into robin hood editing after uh kevin reynolds had elected to leave the film and um we we there was a very very uh important moment to me which was kevin had shot the birth scene that's in the movie with little John's child being born, but had never edited it. And I, I was in a room with the heads of the Warner Brothers and said, can I have a go at editing this thing? And the movie was already of a length. And technically, you don't want a lot of extra length in a movie because you get less playings a day. And I got permission to go edit that scene. And we went to a screening with the heads of the studio and they're frightening haunches. I mean, they're the power source. They're the, you know, the demigods of our world. And then with the financiers, we screened this five-minute scene of the birth. And I was sure they were going to say, no, this is not going to get in. And the two heads of the, the, the studio are sitting down in front of the screening room, and they're talking to each other. And I'm going, oh, shit, this is so important to me. I really felt the movie's heart was in that birth scene. And they turned over and they said, you know, we screened Dark Hollywood last week, and there was a birth scene in that, and the audience loved it. Put it in. And I felt like I'd won the movie that I wrote. Brilliant. And that's all thanks to and thanks to Dark Hollywood, which is a film yeah. I apps which is a film I love. And there we go. <laughs> and I, I will not even pull on that thread and go off on another 10, 15 minute <laughs> ramble about Dark Hollywood, because that's not what we're here to talk about. I John I want to. I do want to wrap up, and I want to ask about kind of when you became aware the film was a, a box office success, and kind of been able to reflect on that. One thing I want to ask you both: you talked about this was not the 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 process for not an ideal process for making a film. What did you guys learn from this that you have took in those thirty years since that you have brought to future projects? What did you learn from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that you have took with you and carried with you on to, for in within your careers? For me, it's it's believing in your instincts and sticking with it, you know, despite all odds. There are plenty of people out there who are telling you things are impossible, and there's nothing like a few rejections to get my blood boiling and <laughs> make me even more determined to press ahead. I think we've always broken the rules. You know, we've always tried to do something that was a little different than what everybody else was trying to do. That same year, we brought out a movie called Backdraft, and there were plenty of people telling us that firefighter movies had never worked. No one had ever made a successful movie. Uh, you know, revolving around uh, firefighting, and we went. Well, it's about time they did. You know, it's a great topic. You know, what's more dramatic than fighting fire? So, I think that's the main thing. It's just you know, believing in yourself and believing in your own vision, and um, it helps to have a partner who shares your belief. That's definitely an, an important factor. Um, so, I don't know. Just 
don't let anybody tell you that it's not it's not commercial i mean it's it clearly it clearly turned out to be commercial yeah. and you know because of many many factors i think the, the heart and soul of it as kind of referred to is probably the number one factor you know going up uh we made a series of films that had a similar theme, I would say, of, of a group of people going up against, getting together to to fight evil and going up against impossible odds and succeeding. I think that's a theme, and I think that the humor that we got from the film, from primarily from uh, Alan Rickman, contributed a lot, and to a certain degree, uh, to our surprise, as we said earlier, and I think we, you know, we embraced that and went with that. You mentioned the one f bomb in the movie. And that was classic because we weren't mm -hmm. really sure that it would work. Christmas <laughs> later uses it as, uh, uh, and uh, we tested it, and the audience went crazy for it. They loved it. So we and, okay. and you're allowed one f bomb and can keep a PG thirteen. So uh, that enabled us to, um, you know, get our, uh, uh, you know, our, our juice going for that. Um, the 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 thing that. Um, there was a couple other things which are great fun. There was discussions of possibly John Cleese playing uh, King Richard at the end of the movie. And I went out of my way to pursue Sean Connery through his agents and rewrote the scene at the end so that there was something there. And um, Sean ended up doing it as a for, for a charitable donation to his hospital. And I was convinced that if he appeared in the movie at the end, it resolved the film emotionally um, and set, set up a um, a situation where the audience would feel like the whole movie made sense and had a had a great sense of completion. And I and I'm stunned that the film is still playing to audiences to this day. We didn't set out to make something that would last this long, but it's wonderful that it does. And um, you know the. The joy of it is still finding people who, like you say, you know, nine years old and sore, and still <laughs> yeah. watching it. It's, it's well, quite absolutely remarkable. Absolutely, give credit to Penn for 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 getting Sean Connery. It was amazing. And so he calls out and said, "We can get Sean Connery as long as we shoot on this one day." Where he'd been to, he was going to Rome to visit with the Pope, and he had to be back in L.A. And he had this one day that if we could figure out to do it, we could get him. And it was somewhere late in November where the basically were, we knew there was basically no leaves on the trees anymore. So in the end, up, we ended up physically taping leaves to trees and having people off camera with buckets full of leaves and throwing them. So those, bucket, those leaves you see falling, the beautiful fall mm -hmm. leaves falling, it's all an illusion. There's people standing on ladders. Off That's the, the magic of cinema. Yeah. That is the magic of cinema. It's like John Carpenter with Halloween. I mean, they weren't suiting around Halloween. I think they were suiting in the summer, I think, when they made that yeah. film. And it's a similar kind of idea. So this is all part of the magic of cinema. Because I, I, I had one of my things I had written down, because I had a red pen, that you didn't, you weren't fussed on John Cleese. You did want Sean Connery in that role. So now, I mean, could, what is your memories of those of that day and that making it happen beyond the beauty of people throwing flowers and having to... Someone being designated that day to literally stick on flowers onto trees. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll talk at it from the passion's point of view. I thought John Cleese would cause the film to feel like it was all a, a, a Monty Python skit. Yeah. And as much as I loved him as a character in, in his in his role, I felt that was a failure. Plus, I'm not very courageous, but I phoned up Mike Ovitz, the head of CAA, which is like phoning the Vatican and demanding the <laughs> 
And I'm asking him to give me one of his major stars because we had no budget left at that time. And I'm and I'm begging him to give me his star. And I'm saying he can't have a credit because if you put a credit on, then the whole movie everyone's going to be waiting for Sean Connery to turn up. And we don't have much money to pay him, but I promise you it'll be a piece of film history. And I'm doing that because I'm passionate. I so believe in that movie that I'm willing to stick my neck out and rewrote the scene. They came back and they said, yeah, give us a million dollars and he'll do a day. And you go, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> there isn't a million dollars. And, you know, he ended up uh, where uh, the negotiations went on, but we actually got him for a donation to his hospital in Scotland. And um, that's one of those things where, you know, don't start something you don't believe in because you won't do these things which are outside of your norms. But it was so important to me for everything we were doing and, and for the belief that this film had some kind of emotional purpose, that the the Arab and the, and the Christian side by side was meaningful, that a man learning to die for the future of his peasant's children was meaningful, and it was all wrapped up in entertainment. And that's why I was able to have the courage to go fight for, for um, Sean Connery when it seemed totally impossible. I can do the impossible when I'm so freaking passionate. You can, you can swear, Pan. Go on, you can swear. I, there's, I'm not there's... sure about... Yeah, okay. So when I'm so fucking passionate. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's my message to anybody that's a creator. And John and I both want to inspire other creative people. It's very important to us. We, we are the result of other people supporting us, people putting their beliefs into us when we were young filmmakers. And the, the difference between being supported and, or not being believed in can make the difference of not doing something that could be great. Robin Hood exists because I was, I was encouraged to write it when it seemed impossible. I, I mean, I can't think of a better way to end this and I was gonna I had a few more questions but I think that's wonderfully profound just way to finish it's a lovely way because people want to tell their stories and they have to have the courage to tell their stories we talk about that here locally in the Belfast scene the local scene here has just kind of went you know off the stratosphere in the last few years in the, the wake of the success of Game of Thrones and filmmakers here are now getting the opportunity to to make films they might never have had to do and well not even film both crews and point of view so I can't think I mean I had intended to ask one last question about your memories of when the film when you seen the film just become such a box office success but <laughs> your your memories just of that and kind of I will ask that question okay. because yeah, do ask having... that question because here's the thing: we're in New York, we're pre we're we're previewing, we're premiering the movie, and my son, uh, who now writes for Netflix science fiction movies, um, the, the he said to me, "How come those people hate you, Daddy?" Because he was reading the reviews, and the reviews on Robin Hood, in many cases, were uh, unfriendly, and um, it it was uh, you know a lot of complaints about his accent. Although in, in that period, you were probably speaking French if you were a nobleman. <laughs> so, you know, the idea that, that, that Kevin's uh, accent was an issue was laughable to me. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the proof of the pudding is that the movie still continues to uh, a, a heart and a soul that touches people. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is also credit to Kevin, who played it the, the way that he felt. Uh, the movie should work, and um, you know he he is he he his instincts are what makes people I think come back all the time.
Yeah. And John, you the same question to yourself, and I shall let you go. Just there's a, a little article framed on my wall that says "Movie Mogul Comes Home." So I went to Yeovil in Somerset, where I grew up, with my mom and my little boy and my wife, and we saw Robin Hood um, in Yeovil Town at the Gaumont Cinema, which no longer exists. And the only time in my life I was sitting next to the local film critic from the Western Gazette. <laughs> the critics don't normally sit with the filmmakers, mm. right? So this talk about, you know, and the the title, I know you saw it, it says Movie Mogul Comes Home. So I certainly never perceived myself as a movie mogul, but in Yeovil, Somerset, I am, or was then, perceived as a movie mogul. So that was kind of a, a very, very special moment from... You know, going back to the place where I was playing bows and arrows in the forest with my with my buddies to actually screening this film in a full theater in Yeovil Town with the film critic next to me. Brilliant. Penn, I thought you had a lovely way to end this interview. I think John has topped you, I'm afraid. I apologize. <laughs> Gentlemen, you have been very generous with your time. Uh, this evening for me, this morning for yourselves in L.A., Thank you very much. It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, hopefully in some shape or form, our paths shall cross again. Maybe not through the world of Zoom. Maybe we will get you here to Belfast. Uh, who that knows? Sounds like an invitation. I'm on my way. Boom. Not a problem. I shall meet you at the airport. There uh, we go. best encouragement to your filmmakers there. If we can do it, they can do it. Penn, John, thank you very much right. for your time. Thank you, guys. So that's my interview with Penn Danchum and John Watson about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat. On the next episode of More Than Pixels on a Screen, we are going to be back in the studio. I'm going to be speaking with local filmmaker Adam Neeson. And we are going to be talking about Rob Zombie's The Munsters. It's available on DVD, Blu-ray and various VOD platforms to rent or buy here in the UK. And if you're in the States listening to this, you can seek it out on Netflix there. So you've that to look forward to. And as an added incentive, I'm going to be speaking to one of the film's stars. That's Daniel Roebuck. I got a chance to speak to him via Zoom. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode and any future recordings of More Than Pixels on a Screen. And maybe while you're at it, you might want to check out the Banterflix website where you'll find the links to our TV show on NVTV here in Belfast. You will find the back catalogue of this podcast in its various guises over the years. You can read some fantastic reviews and features by talented contributors here in Northern Ireland. And while you're at it, you might want to sign up to our mailing list so that you're the first to know about any events that we will be hosting in the city. And you'll also be kept in the loop about the Dark Hedges International Film Festival, which will be returning later this year. But that is enough of me trying to sell the Banderflix wares. All that's left for me to do is once again thank you for listening. I'll be back with another episode of More Than Pixels on a Screen pretty soon. But for now, until then, goodbye.